life hacks for 2021. That's right. We've got some tips for a happier, healthier, and more productive 2021. And we are wearing yellow and gray, which are apparently the colors of the year. That's right. At least we're trying. We're Actually, trying. I think silver's better. I think it works yeah. pretty nice. Got to start the year Flashy. off on the right foot. Yeah. Optimistic right. yellow and uh, kind of gloomy gray. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, I'm Leslie Leo. I'm Andrew Ryan. And I'm Natalie So. Let's get to life hack number one. Many of us got a taste last year of what it's like to work from home. Mm. So whether you're still working at home or you just want to be more productive. We want to share with you some tips that were useful for us. And the first one comes from my home office. Now, the first thing you need to do is designate a workspace and time. This is Andrew's home office. <laughs> then set boundaries such as no kids in your workspace and not getting distracted by social media. Our next tip is to stay connected to your colleagues. And we try to do that with a weekly video meeting. The next um, tip is to use the new situation to innovate and to add value to your work, like Leslie did here, <laughs> dancing with dogs, which he wouldn't have done if he was filming hashtag Taiwan on set as he used to. We also arranged interviews with people outside of Taipei, like Douglas Habaker and Tai Zong, who told us how he survived COVID-19, and Xing Yi Huang in New York, who had been performing quarantine music. In a word, what did you guys think of working from home, hmm. Leslie? Well, it's not quite a word, but... <laughs> Discipline required. When you're forced to work in the same place where all your toys are, it's recipe for disaster. <laughs> oh, I agree. How about you, Andrew? Yeah, I agree with what Leslie said, but also... Frustrating! Oh, you guys! I mean, I know it's great to work from home. I know you loved it, I Natalie. I loved it! Yes, but I think for me, I need a little bit more structure, and we do need a little you bit like more FaceTime. like to be around time. us. Uh, I like to have you around me. <laughs> yeah. I, I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, those are our thoughts on working from home, and let's go to life hack number two. Now, working from home may have grown a bit more common this year, but what about working in your sleep? That's how our digital minister, Audrey Tang, finds solutions to her work problems. And I was fascinated to hear her talk about this. So um, if I'm doing um, my job uh, well and there's no especially difficult problem to solve, uh, I sleep like seven and a half or eight hours a night. Uh, but if I do have to build common values out of very different positions, uh, then I'll have to work longer. That is to say, sleep longer. So <laughs> I might have to sleep nine hours, like putting extra one hour in <laughs> just to come up with a uh, innovative solution. So you work while you're sleeping. That's how, right. How do you train yourself mm -hmm. to do that? That's really fascinating. Um, so uh, it, it's very easy, actually. I just read the materials immediately before going to sleep. And I read without sounding them in my head and without passing judgments. So it's like a scanner. You just scan it. You in, read it on bulk. a computer or? A mm, it could be paper. Uh -huh. uh, but I also have this iPad. Uh, which is technically a touch screen, but only touch it uh, using um, Apple Pencil. Uh, so again, no um, like touch screen addiction. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. So whether it's an ebook or whether it's a uh, large real printed paper book, uh, I just flip it immediately before going to bed uh, and then um, say to myself that I will wake up with a solution. Uh, and then I sleep however long it takes. If it's really difficult, I may have to sleep for 10 hours. Uh, that's the longest. <laughs> <laughs> and then wake up with 
installation. I don't know about you guys, but I have a hard enough time sleeping as it is. <laughs> so what did you all think of her ideas? Let's start with Leslie. Much like anything that uh, you know, Minister Tong brings to the table, it's just, it's, it's too smart. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too much, too high Q, uh, yeah, high intelligence. <laughs> I think it's just totally out of my realm of comprehension. That's true. You can practice though. I could. How about you, uh, Nelly? I, I found her to be really inspiring. I mean, there's just so much innovation coming out of her mind. And you know, mm -hmm. she also doesn't like touch screens. Yeah, she uses that little Apple like Because uh, she wants to stay away from it. She knows it's addictive. So I was so surprised mm. to see how innovative she is about her, her relationship with everything. Yeah, about so. her time, media, work. Yeah. Fascinating as always. We move on now to our life hack number three. Taiwan's been pretty successful keeping its people healthy and free of the coronavirus. In fact, one of our most popular videos from last year focused on how schools were keeping students safe from COVID-19. Children in Taiwan are back to school, but school life has changed. Many schools are using new ways to prevent disease, like these dividers. At Daja Elementary School, every student has their own divider to prevent the spread of viruses through airborne droplets. During lunchtime, the children keep a distance from each other when they're eating. Some schools don't allow their students to talk to each other during lunch. This mom says she's so worried about her kids going back to school, it's affecting her sleep. She used to celebrate when her kids went back to school, but now she says she has a lot more anxiety. The students need to disinfect their shoes before they enter the campus and get their temperature checked. Windows are kept open so fresh air can come in. And now each class has a sanitation monitor. He says his responsibility is to disinfect the classroom, from doorknobs to desktops. The sanitation monitors are in charge of keeping the classroom clean. As children play dodgeball, Taiwan schools hope they can dodge any outbreak of COVID-19. It's pretty good stuff. Anyway, Andrew, Natalie, what you guys think of that? Andrew? Uh, I think that those are all necessary mm. things to teach our kids. Start them when they're young. That's great. And I would describe it as vigilance. I think that's why Taiwan has been so successful. Every little, you know, thermometer and everybody's, yeah. you know, mask. The spraying the hands. Everything. Yep. Yes. I mean, those are Everything cool. helps. Oh, those are great words. I mean, you can't be too careful in these unprecedented times. Anyway, let's move on to life hack number four. Now that they're starting to roll out the COVID-19 vaccines, I think a lot more people are going to start traveling, right? That's right. However, you still want to take precautions to keep yourself safe. Yes, last year I asked Andrew and mm -hmm. Leslie to guess my top 10 list for safety during air travel, and this is what happened. Go. Wear a mask. Good. Uh, wipe down your seat. Good. <laughs> Is that all you guys can do? Don't go to the bathroom. Good. Stay in your seat. Stay That's your one seat. of them. Don't eat anything. Don't eat anything. Okay. Don't drink anything. Okay. Well, mine was don't bring your own. I mean, bring your own food. Okay. But um, we'll, we'll take that. You got that one. All right. Find a seat where you're the only person on the plane, you or can't like three, that. three rows behind, no three but you can Okay, okay, stay two meters apart from stay people. I'll meters. give you that. No talking. I didn't put that on the list. <laughs> no carry-on luggage. I didn't put that on the list either. That's a pretty good idea. Wait, That's a good I, idea. I, I did it That's first. a good idea. No, no breathing. <laughs> Hold your breath. <laughs> Use a straw when drinking. <laughs> I didn't put that on. Get a COVID-19 test before you board the plane. 
Kick everyone else off the plane. <laughs> Demand to sit with the pilot. <laughs> Be the pilot. <laughs> that was a good one. That's well, those are one. all great ideas. I think we're done. Are we out of... You guys out. got five out of ten. All right. So who got the and five? And Leslie got three. Ooh. Yay. I think some of mine were I excellent <laughs> ones. They just weren't on the list. Okay. Do you want to hear the list? Let's hear the sure. list. Okay. So avoid crowded planes. <laughs> so try to book... Um, at off-peak times. Mm. Also, disinfect what other people have touched, okay, such as your own um, clothes, your passports, you know, your own stuff. Choose a window seat. Oh. oh. Okay, so that'll that... keep you farther away from people. Wait, so you can open the window and get fresh <laughs> air in the plane? <laughs> the next is about fresh air. Open the air vent. Okay. Did you know that actually the air changes every two and three minutes in oh. the plane? It, they take plane uh, air from the outside. So actually, when you keep it on, it's better ventilation for you mm. and wash your hands or san use sanitizer as often as you can. Did no, <laughs> we not say that? That feels like something really obvious. That. I feel like that that's just a given. It shouldn't so. be on the list. <laughs> so what did you guys think of the air travel tips? Leslie. A no thank you. <laughs> this is not a no thank you to your, uh, to your air safety chips. I mean, I think those are great, but yeah. I'm saying no thank you to air travel in general because uh. even before the pandemic, it was such a pain. So yeah, you don't like it. You don't air. miss it like some people do, right? I mean, I miss going to other places. I just don't miss, you know, the airplane, the, the security journey. checkpoints, <laughs> the losing the luggage, you know, yeah. the check-in times and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, we had a lot in common, Leslie. I thought the same thing. Stay home. <laughs> I mean, the best way to keep yourself safe is to not travel. And of course, they're saying if you're in a place where there are a lot of transmissions, it's it's better to stay at home rather mm. than you know risk infecting other people or catching it yourself. Of course. All right. So moving on now to life hack number five. Taiwan is set to be a super aging society by 2025. It's also one of the world's high-tech hubs. Apps can tell you if gas is leaking from your stove, send personal health info to your family, and have robots interact with the elderly. In the new year, be sure to take advantage of this new technology, like say having AI check the elderly for early signs of dementia. Could doctors soon be able to tell if patients have dementia just by asking them to raise their arms? With the right equipment, perhaps. On a screen, red dots track how good patients' balance is. If the dots flash, it means that their balance is off, a sign of early age dementia. Doctors can also place photos of a patient's face on screen and zoom in on tiny signs of imbalance between features that might also hint at early-stage dementia. In addition to looking for physical signs, doctors will also check if patients' brain waves are slower than the average person's. All these tests are part of a new branch of artificial intelligence developed by Kaohsiung Municipal Datong Hospital and National Sun Yat-sen University. In particular, the project aims to spot dementia caused by Alzheimer's. Is someone in your family becoming more forgetful than usual? While it is difficult to detect early signs even for doctors, the new AI system may soon be able to help your loved ones get the diagnosis they need. All right, Natalie and Andrew, tell me what you guys thought about that AI technology. Andrew? Uh, well, I think it is very impactful. I always like seeing, you know, high tech being used in very practical ways that we can experience as normal human beings rather than being, you know, hidden in our devices. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is cool. And though some people are, you know, anxious, I actually think, think it's very exciting what's coming up in AI. Mm. So instead of being anxious about AI and how it may disrupt our lives, there's a lot to be excited about. Yes, absolutely. it can be very helpful. That's 
correct. All right, on a life hack number six. One form of art that has brought many people comfort and inspiration throughout the pandemic is music. That's right. And I actually interviewed a concert pianist, Shinny Huang, who would record himself playing the piano and then he would post those videos on the internet with the hashtag quarantine music. He told us why people responded so positively to his videos. So I was doing it at first just to share music, but then people started to comment on it and then uh, people enjoy it and they find like sort of a safe space for them every day, a couple minutes just to reflect on how they feel and stuff like that. And then it, I was really inspired. So then I started to take requests and stuff like that. And then just to learn a piece every day. And it turns out to be a lot a lot more work than I expected, but you know, it's, it's wonderful. Now, Natalie, you also looked into the science behind why music can help reduce stress. There are many neurological responses in the brain when we listen to music. There's an increase of immunoglobulin A, which boosts our immune system, and natural killer cells, which attack harmful bacteria and germs. Connecting with music also increases dopamine, which makes us happier, and reduces cortisol, which is a stress hormone. So whether it's creating, playing, or just listening to music, it soothes our minds. Music actually alters our brain waves, which helps us relax. It can even help you overcome insomnia. Listening to calming music in a relaxed position for 45 minutes helps you fall asleep easier. The beauty of music is it distracts us from our worries. And it's a creative outlet that helps us explore and express our deepest emotions. So Natalie and Leslie, what did the two of you think about the power of music? Leslie, why don't we start with you? Oh, uh, well, Andrew was a lot more scientific than I thought. <laughs> you know, this goes out the realm of my expertise, but I used to think Music sounds good. Music makes me happy. Happy Leslie, good. <laughs> well put. I like that. I think of yeah. it as the power of renewal. Mm. Sometimes I feel more relaxed. Sometimes I feel more energized. It's a, a kind of renewal. I love it. Yeah. And what better for uh, the year 2021? All right, moving on to our next life hack. One of the most touching interviews I did last year was about fatherhood with Dale Carnegie founder John Hay, who's written many books about relationships. That's right. And he talked about what parents really want from their children. And this life hack is something you can use in any relationship. Your parents would be most, most appreciative when you tell them how important role your parents played in your life, mm. either in writing a letter, don't just send a card, parent, Father's Day's card, just write. You have to write it yourself. Right? <laughs> yeah, must be a handwritten right? paragraph, mm. not even just one line, Happy Father's Day. That won't work. <laughs> so either writing a letter or if you are self-confident enough, tell them face to face. Mm. Uh, how much you loved them and uh, in what incident or example 
your parents did on you, either at home or at school or at outside, which means a lot to you today. Don't ever think there are plenty of time. I will do next year. And then several years passed, you still wouldn't do it because this is out of your comfort zone. Mm. You just don't feel easy or comfortable. But it means so much, It right? means so much to them. Expressing your appreciation. What did you guys think of his idea? Uh, three words, Natalie. You gotta do that. Aww, gotta do that. Gotta do it. It's not even like gotta do that more. It's just like I flat out need to do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I hear you. Leslie, my words, say it. Uh, he was suggesting writing a letter, but why not just uh, tell your parents in person? I think they'd love That's that too. Right. I love yeah. it when my kids give me a card. I mean, I'm totally, I totally melt. <laughs> you know, I'm like, it's worth it being a mom. <laughs> Everything I've done is worth it. That's great. So, yeah. Anyways, a great suggestion for the new year. So there you have it, seven life hacks for 2021. And what were your favorites? Uh, Leslie? I want to say probably uh, the Dale Carnegie appreciation one, only because it poses the biggest challenge to me. <laughs> I like that. You know, I feel the same way. I feel like I really need to do this with my family, friends, and I appreciate you guys. You guys are awesome co-hosts. I appreciate you too, Gary. <laughs> and I appreciate you too, Leslie. I appreciate everybody within a five-meter vicinity. You know, I have to say, I was going to say the Audrey time one where, you know, working in your sleep. Oh, uh, that's a good one. I really want to try that this year. But, I mean, I, I'll be a team player. I, I, I like the same one you guys liked. <laughs> anyway, check in with us again next week when we go over our animals of the year. That's, that's going right. to be great. And tell us which life hack was your favorite. Leave a comment below. Subscribe if you like the show. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew, I thought we said no more intestines. <clears throat> That's on Feast Meets West every Saturday, only on Radio Taiwan International, radio for refined palates. Visit RTI at english.rti.org.tw. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. 
As the U.S. gets ready to inaugurate Joe Biden as president this month, Taiwan is hoping that strong U.S.-Taiwan ties will continue. Now, recently, the former director of the de facto U.S. Embassy, the American Institute in Taiwan, William Stanton, wrote an article called A New Year's Taiwan Wish List for President Biden. He suggested ideas such as the two sides signing a bilateral trade agreement, joint military exercises, ship visits, high-level official visits, and the U.S. refusing to return to the WHO unless Taiwan can become an observer. Today, I speak with Stanton about his ideas, and he tells me which one he thinks is the most likely to happen. I think, just based on my contact with current former military people, I think there's a it's it's likely that um, I think U.S. arms sales will continue simply because it's you know it's the most evidently in the U.S. interest to support Taiwan, particularly now that I've seen this statement by the the Japanese Minister of Defense talking about how uh, Taiwan was a red line for Japan. I think that has to be true also for the United States, unless the U.S. is just going to capitulate and give up. East Asia, um, you know, and say, wash our hands of it. I just don't see how we can ignore, you know, the future of Taiwan and helping to secure it. So I'm pretty optimistic about that. You know, I don't know all of the people who are coming into the Biden administration yet. And I have reason to be a little bit suspect about one or two of them. But I mean, I think that's pretty likely. I think the fact that, you know, there's you know, we'll, we'll see how the pork issue turns out. But it's always been in our interest, as I argued, to have a uh, a trade agreement with Taiwan because it strengthens our relationship. And as I pointed out in a previous article and then reiterated, um, most of our trade agreements have not been based on economic issues at all. Really? So it's... It's more based on strategic alliances? Or? Yeah, well, the very first trade agreement we ever had was with Israel. And then following Israel, we had it with other countries who were not major trading partners. They were moderate Arab states. It was Jordan, it was Oman, and it was Morocco. And then at some point, we uh, early on, it was Bahrain. That was not for trade reasons. It was trying to... Uh, foster relations with more moderate Arab states, and then subsequently we had uh, we had trade relations with Chile and Peru, in themselves not very important per se, but they were important because at that time, particularly in Chile, they were moving in a more capitalist direction in their economy, and the U.S. wanted to foster it. And after that, we had a Central American agreement. And that was aimed at, first of all, trying to stabilize those countries, trying to stem the flow of narcotics, trying to stem the flow of immigrants. Um, you know, it was meant to be supportive. Um, others, you know, I was in Australia when we did an agreement with Australia, and that was largely because John Howard was being repaid by President George W. Bush for having sent troops to Iraq. And he wanted a trade agreement, so President Bush said, sure, we'll make that happen. And, you know, the most uh, South Korea was because they're an ally. Uh, even though, you know, it wasn't in our economic interest because uh, Korea, South Korea has always had a trade surplus with the United States. 
and uh, it has one now even bigger once <laughs> we pass the trade agreement. Right. So um, the ones that you could argue are actually, you know, just as strategic as they are economic. The U.S. two largest trading partners uh, combined are, are Canada and Mexico. So in a way, the NAFTA agreement, which they said they renegotiated, but I don't think it was all that much changed under uh, under Trump. That agreement, he changed the name of it. Um, but <laughs> the the reason for that is, you know, the U.S. is defended by two oceans, <laughs> and it has two benign neighbors. Uh, you know, so we have trading relations, but it was also basically, you know, to strengthen those ties we have with those two countries because they're our closest neighbors. So I, I would argue that all of our trade agreements, at least, you know, out of the twenty we've 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 shaped, at least twelve were more based on strategic and political reasons than they were for economic or trade reasons. So Taiwan has, you know, gotten rid of the uh, pork and uh, beef issue. So do you yeah. think that the U.S. will? Respond in kind to sign a bilateral treaty. Well, that's why I put it in my my essay that they certainly ought to. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the problems was that it's funny because the understanding was with the Ma Ying-jeou government is once the Codex Alimentarius for Animals, once they made a decision, even though it was a close vote, and that was only because the French and the and the uh, Chinese figured it would never pass and didn't bother to show up, so it went on the agenda. So it passed by uh, like at sixty nine to sixty seven. But the you know the understanding was that once they allowed beef in, that we would then proceed with pork, and it never happened. And one of the problems in dealing with the U.S. Trade Representative Office is that it's it's rather small. And they, like the trade representatives here, also come under trade pressure. And the the ranchers and farmers, as we've seen in the election of Trump, have an outside influence on politics, because even they have they have minimal, more small populations. Places Wyoming and Colorado, Colorado is a little bit bigger, but the Dakotas and other places, the farm interests and the ranching interests are very strong. So just as the pig farmers here have a lot of influence uh, in the government, so I always thought that, you know, it, it seemed to me from talking to the people at USTR, they felt burned that they sort of had a commitment that pork would be next, and then it never happened. And the other thing about USTR is it's a very small organization, and they have a lot of career people. And their feeling was, and I know this because I made frequent trips to USTR to promote a, a trade agreement for Taiwan when I was at AIT, mm -hmm. the, I was trying to get it, and they obviously were really sour on Taiwan. Really? They, they, yeah, they felt that it really hadn't lived up to its commitments and didn't have a very positive attitude at all. And it didn't help the fact that I think when Ma Ying-jeou was uh, president, I don't think he was at all that interested in a trading relationship with the U.S. anyway. You know, he was he was very much focused on fostering trading relations with China. So anyway, I think having made this this very difficult political decision, when I was at AIT, it was the DPP was in opposition, and they said, "No, we can't have it because you know we have all these pork farmers in our constituency." And the, 
the KMT said, well, we can't do it because the DPP doesn't want it. <laughs> and there, there's opposition. But we, they, as I put in, they were cynical about it because they all said, oh, you know, I lived in the States. I love U.S. beef. My family eats it. I know there's no problem. I know you have very high safety standards and all that. Um, but then they, they're out of power, and suddenly, you know, they're defending the people against the encroachments of, uh, of poisonous uh, U.S. meat. So, you know, it's just turnaround a little bit. But it's well within the realm of possibility, assuming that, you know, this referendum doesn't go through and they retract again that promise, which is kind of crazy because, you know, as I saw, there was an article today by the Academia Seneca president who said that all food, in a sense, kills you over time (laughs) because all food is contaminated in one way or another. You know, and even if it's not, if you eat too much of it, you get sick. You can get sick from drinking too much water. <laughs> you can get sick, of course, from eating too much sugar, too many carbs. You know, there are reports now if you take too much uh, vitamin D, it can have, you know, deleterious effects. You know, too much vitamin A can be, you know, unhealthy. So when I was at AIT, actually, I... I didn't make a big issue of it in public, but I used to give reporters, I, I ran off a list of all of the, the products that were approved as feed additives in Taiwan, and it was a long list. Mm. And a long list of the pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers that could be used on fruits and plants and all. And I said, you know, somehow Taiwanese people think that when they're eating Taiwanese-made food, it's all pure, but it's not. No, it's not, that's for sure. Yeah, and and the, <laughs> the other factor is that actually, in terms of meat, one of the problems Taiwan has always had, particularly with beef, because they don't grow, uh, produce a lot of it, is that mostly it's the local butcher who will butcher an individual cow or two. And nobody's inspecting that. So even, I, I looked it up again, uh, there was a warning that came out, I could send it to you if you want, in 2012, about how feed additives that were prohibited could not be used. And I think the reason was, it was late 2011 or early 2012, there was a very small article, I think it was in the Taipei Times, because I read it in English, that you know there were, they had found on seven different pig and duck farms feed additives, including feed additives that were not permitted in the United States, <laughs> uh, including, but they also had reptopamine. So, you know, not everybody was abiding by the instructions to begin with. I don't think the checking was ever, ever as careful, because when shipments of beef, for example, came into port, they inspected all of it. And then they would also go out and inspect what was on shelves. But they never did the equivalent amount of searching, you know, in Taiwan food. So, you know, it's it's in a way it's a it's a it's a very difficult psychological and political issue. But and I, you know, I dealt with it for three years in Korea, and the Koreans didn't turn out thousands or tens of thousands. They turned out hundreds of thousands of people protesting it. But finally, the president decided he was going to do it. And then everybody sort of said, oh, okay, <laughs> they stopped. So so I'm curious, what do you think about the U.S. attitude now? Now that Taiwan has made such a big step, you know, President Taiwan, do you well, think that I, they're likely to, to um, give us a trade agreement? 
Well, they should, but, you know, we've been in a period of turmoil. I mean, mm, we've basically true. not had a president for like six <laughs> months, or certainly the last three. All he's been doing, you know, Trump has solely been focused not even on people in America dying of COVID-19. He's been focused on getting somehow his claim to be having been reelected, um, you know, imposing that on people. So... He hasn't been paying attention to He hasn't been paying attention to the trade agreement with China, which, of course, that was his great hope. Mm-hmm. That was what he really wanted. And to the extent that a lot of Taiwanese today naively believe he was very uh, anti-China uh, and very pro-Taiwan, as you know, you saw there was a. I saw in Taipei Times today there was an article about a demonstration on Saturday. You know, that's, there's just no evidence of that. I mean, he had accepted the phone call based on the advice, the congratulatory election call back in 2016, based on the advice of people around him. But almost all of the positive initiatives, I thought, during the Trump administration, they all came from people around him. You know, some of them less less bright about the issues than others, like Peter Navarro, others terrific, like Matt Pottinger at the NSC, or General Stilwell at the NSC, or um, Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State. These guys were very much, I think, anti-China, very pro-Taiwan. But, um, you know, Not to Trump's credit. <laughs> Trump was always talking about my good friend. Early on, if you go back and look <laughs> at the right. record, he was never critical of China. Well, because I... his big mission, and you, this is clear in John Bolton's book, his memoir of being in the White House, he, you know, he compared Taiwan to the nib of his pen, and right. China was his desk. So he always wanted a China trade agreement. That was going to be his great legacy. And when he didn't get it, he began to turn against China and the trade war began and so forth. That is William Stanton, the former director of the de facto U.S. Embassy in Taiwan, the American Institute in Taiwan. He is currently the vice president of National Yangming University. Next week, I'll continue to speak with him about how he thinks the Biden administration will deal with U.S.-Taiwan ties. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Time Machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste. And the destination Taipei, 1924. In 1924, when Taiwan had been under Japanese rule for just shy of 30 years, the colonial authorities put up a building in Taipei's botanical garden. Unlike some of the more monumental buildings put up in Taipei, however, this was a simple brick building of two stories, not something built to impress. Inside the building, though, a project was underway, a project to identify Taiwan's plants and plot their distribution. This was the Taipei Botanical Garden's herbarium. Teams of researchers were sent out across Taiwan on surveying missions, charged with collecting plant samples from across the island. The plants they brought back were sent here for treatment, identification, cataloging, and storage. Japanese rule ended in 1945, 
and the early search for economically useful plants has since given way to more academic concerns. But even today, the work of surveying Taiwan's plant life and plotting what grows where is still ongoing. In 2017, well after this work had moved to a more modern facility, the older barium opened once again to the public as a memorial of sorts to the leaders of early botany in Taiwan. Inside, visitors can see how plants were identified and cured, and where samples were stored in a kind of plant library. They can also learn about the history of botany in Taiwan, about the lives of three botanists who contributed most to understanding Taiwan's flora. The story of botany in Taiwan begins in the 19th century. Westerners brought to Taiwan with the opening of imperial Chinese treaty ports were the first to classify Taiwan's plants. By 1896, one A. Henry was able to publish a list of over 1,400 local plants. These early botanists, however, rarely got much farther beyond Taiwan's coastal areas and low mountains. A more complete knowledge of the whole island would have to wait until the Japanese colonial period began in 1895. Over the decades that followed Henry's list, Japanese botanists would begin a more thorough investigation that included offshore islands and the high mountains of Taiwan's interior. Part of the impetus for this search was the hope of finding plants that might have practical uses, plants that could either generate a profit or help the military. Taiwan did indeed prove to have useful plants. While under Japanese rule, Taiwan's camphor trees would come to supply up to 70% of the world's camphor needs. Until it was replaced by synthetic alternatives, camphor was used for everything from making plastic-like materials to smokeless gunpowder and medicine. Taiwan also had rubber plants, prized ornamental flowers, and a tree found to be useful as a substitute for cinnamon. Despite the practical side of things, though, there was also a genuine interest in advancing knowledge, too. One of the scholars remembered in the herbarium today, Hayata Bunzo, arrived in Taiwan from Japan in 1903. He went to work and spent the years from 1911 to 1921 writing a 10-volume work in Latin that included both early Western findings about Taiwan's plants and the more recent discoveries of Japanese botanists. Over 3,000 species were described. Later, in 1908, two more founding figures of Taiwanese botany arrived from Japan, Kanehira Ryozo and Sasaki Shunichi. Kanehira's work included a 1917 treatise on Taiwan's trees, a work that examines Taiwan's different forest zones, as well as the trees of Taiwan's outlying islands. Some of Kanehira's discoveries were celebrated by the colonial government. Mitrastemon, a rare, flowering, parasitic plant he found on Taiwan, was a feature at a 1925 exhibition marking 30 years of Japanese rule on Taiwan. It was also Kanehira who had this herbarium built, in his role as head of the colonial forestry department. Sasaki Shunichi, meanwhile, was one of the herbarium's early directors, starting in 1930, by Sasaki's time, the herbarium had only been open for six years, but already its collection had swollen and needed cataloging. Sasaki's catalog recorded over 30,000 specimens belonging to over 6,000 species. 
Sasaki's office, with its 1930s microscope and other scientific equipment, has been restored to its original condition. New samples came in all the time, and the process of cataloging and preserving them was exhaustive and exhausting. Samples from new expeditions would first be bound tightly in sleeves to press out some of the moisture. They would then be left in the sun or heated up until the drying process was complete. These first two steps alone could take days. Then, chemicals would be applied to kill off any insect larvae and preserve the specimens. They would then be mounted and studied under a microscope for telltale differences that are often subtle but can often distinguish one species from another. Finally, the mounted samples would be categorized and labeled with details about the date, place, and circumstances of their discovery. Originally, everything would be placed in cabinets made of wood, but Taiwan's humidity and abundance of pests eventually led to a switch to well-ventilated metal cabinets. The room was controlled for temperature and humidity using a specially built ventilation system. Researchers, and sometimes members of the public, looking into a certain plant would use a card catalog system, much like those in an old library, to find what they were looking for among all those cabinets. Original sign-in sheets and notices listing rules for visitors are among the objects still on display in the herbarium today. Later in the 1930s, Japan went to war in China, and eventually throughout the Pacific. As it did, government attention moved away from this botany project and work slowed. Early photos suggest that along the balcony-like second floor, the original metal railings were stripped away for use as war material. They were replaced with the wooden railings that are still there today. With the end of Japanese rule at the war's end in 1945, the botany project continued. After the war, when Taiwan was handed over to the Republic of China, a new Taiwan Province Forestry Research Institute simply took over the job of mapping and identifying Taiwan's plant life. The results of new surveys were published in new journals. From the 1970s on, Taiwan's economy grew, but so too did concerns about conservation. Starting around this time, there was a greater emphasis on work involving rare plants. Eventually, as new plants were discovered and more and more samples came in, it was decided that the herbarium would need a new home. A more modern facility, where more modern techniques could be used, was opened in 2000, and the whole collection was moved there into neat rows of rolling stacks. By this point, the collection already housed more than 100,000 specimens. Pictures and data about specimens was digitized and put online, Today, the new facility houses original glass plate specimens collected by early Japanese botanists, as well as specimens from around the world exchanged with other facilities. Thousands of new specimens come in each year as the Forestry Bureau continues its research. What was to be done with the old herbarium, though? It was later declared a historic site, but otherwise little used. It has only been in the last year, after restoration work, that the site has been brought back to life for the public. 
In addition to biographies of the great botanists and recreations of their working environments, you can also see their equipment, their cameras, collection boxes, and technical instruments, as well as photographs from their treks into Taiwan's high mountains, taken in the interests of understanding this island's natural wealth. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International from Taipei, Taiwan. This is Highlights, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. One form of art that has brought many people comfort and inspiration throughout the pandemic is music. That's right. And I actually interviewed a concert pianist, Xin Huang, who would record himself playing the piano, and then he would post those videos on the internet with the hashtag quarantine music. He told us why people responded so positively to his videos. So I was doing it at first just to share music, but then people started to comment on it and then uh, people enjoy it and they find like sort of a safe space for them every day, a couple minutes just to reflect on how they feel and stuff like that. And then it, I was really inspired. So then I started to take requests and stuff like that. And then just to learn a piece every day. And it turns out to be a lot a lot more work than I expected, but you know, it's, it's wonderful. Now, Natalie, you also looked into the science behind why music can help reduce stress. There are many neurological responses in the brain when we listen to music. There's an increase of immunoglobulin A, which boosts our immune system, and natural killer cells, which attack harmful bacteria and germs. Connecting with music also increases dopamine, which makes us happier, and reduces cortisol, which is a stress hormone. So whether it's creating, playing, or just listening to music, it soothes our minds. Music actually alters our brain waves, which helps us relax. It can even help you overcome insomnia. Listening to calming music in a relaxed position for 45 minutes helps you fall asleep easier. The beauty of music is it distracts us from our worries. And it's a creative outlet that helps us explore and express our deepest emotions. So Natalie and Leslie, what did the two of you think about the power of music? Leslie, why don't we start with you? Uh, well, Andrew, it was a lot more scientific than I thought. <laughs> you know, this goes out the realm of my expertise, but I used to think... Music sounds good. Music makes me happy. Happy Leslie, good. <laughs> <laughs> well put. I like that. I think of yeah. it as the power of renewal. Mm. Sometimes I feel more relaxed. Sometimes I feel more energized. It's a, a kind of renewal. I love it. Yeah. And what better for uh, the year 2021? Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International. 
broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw. Our 60-minute English program can be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 6185 kHz. In South Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. You can also email us at rti at rti.org.tw.